My pleasure as Secretary of the Academy to, invite, to welcome you here this evening to a very, very special evening indeed for the public event with uh, Professor Peter Higgs and colleagues. And first, a couple of housekeeping items. If you have your phones, please put them on silent or even preferably switch them off. Uh, and uh, the second one is to do with fire uh, exits. There's two at the back where you came in, and there's one here. And if anything should happen, proceed in an orderly fashion and assemble outside the mansion house. Okay. Uh, many of you will, will have been here before, but for those who may not have been, you're actually sitting on some seats which came from the original Irish Parliament in College Green. Now you'll notice you're sitting up very straight because I'm sure they were designed to keep parliamentarians awake. But you won't need it this evening, I'm sure, because we're looking forward to a very exciting event. <laughs> Tonight's event has actually proved a bestseller in very many respects. It sold out within two hours of announcement. And uh, of course, that shouldn't be any surprise because of the huge public interest that was aroused last July when CERN announced the discovery of a particle at about 126 GeV, which is uh, consistent with the Higgs boson. And uh, the announcement, which reported that both the ATLAS and CMS detectors at the Large Hadron Collider had recorded a new uh, uh, particle captured the imagination of the public worldwide. But it also was very fortuitous for here in Dublin because it coincided with the ESOF event, which many of you remember. And some of you will remember that in this room we had a Higgs masterclass session. And this included uh, people like Frank Close and our own Stephen Myers uh, from Northern Ireland, who was the director of the Accelerators and Technology at CERN. And it also included uh, <coughs> the director general of CERN. Uh, so tonight we're really honoured to be joined by the scientist whose name has become indeed a household one and one synonymous with that July 2012 discovery, Professor Peter Higgs from Edinburgh. And he carried out his similar work almost 50 years ago in the early 60s. And in fact, we'll see four generations, of scientific generations, I suppose. That's a first in itself, I think, to be here in the Academy uh, in, in, in the event this evening. But over these last five decades, Professor Higgs has received numerous awards. Can't mention them all, but some would include the 1981 Hughes Medal from the Royal Society, the 1984 Rutherford Medal and the 1997 Dirac Medal from the Institute of Physics, 97 High Energy and Particle Physics Prize from the European Physical Society, the Wolf Prize, the Oscar Klein Memorial Lecture Medal from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, and indeed a, a unique Higgs Medal from the Royal Society of Edinburgh in 2012. And in 2011, he was awarded the Edinburgh Award for his outstanding contribution to the city. And this year, he was awarded the Nonino Prize for Man of Our Time, and he shared the award at the Edinburgh International Science Festival Edinburgh Medal jointly with CERN. And this year's honour list, he was appointed a companion of honour. So he's received numerous uh, honours worldwide, I say. He's also received many honorary doctors. I'm going to mention one in particular because I was just talking to Peter just before the event. And back in 1997, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to attend. And in Peter's company, there were also two others, uh, Christopher Clewellyn Smith, who was then Director General of uh, CERN, and uh, Aaron Anov of the Aronov Bohm effect. And the great thing about it was all the conferring was in the morning, but in the afternoon, each of them gave a lecture. And I still remember that to this day. It was a fantastic physics fest, if you like. And I think this evening's event will, will, will be uh, uh, similar. 
We have the opportunity to hear about the exciting scientific journey over five decades, bringing us from Professor Higgs' pioneering research, today's ongoing experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, and the current status of this fundamental field of research. Uh, Professor Higgs is joined by three of his University of Edinburgh colleagues who will give their perspectives on development over essentially four generations of scientific uh, work, I think. I'd like to particularly thank Professor Mike Pearden from Trinity College Dublin for bringing the idea of this event to the Academy and for all your work in organising it. And I'd like to pay tribute to Rebecca Farrell, Josephine and Donica from the Academy here who helped to, make, uh, to bring you all here today. Very special thanks, of course, are due to Professor Higgs himself, Professor Alan Walker, Dr. Victoria Martin and Francisca Garay for speaking at the event tonight and for giving us your time, I'm sure, in all your busy schedules. I'm very much looking forward to the next hour or so, as I'm sure you all are. And finally, uh, could I thank you all for coming tonight, and we look forward to seeing you again at future events. And in that respect, I think you might find a card on the seat where you can fill in your contact details and you can be put on a mailing list for future events. So can I ask you now to give a very, very warm welcome indeed to our speakers for tonight's event entitled A Conversation with Peter Higgs and Colleagues. I'm now, I'm now handing over to Professor Alan Walker, who will take us through the event. Well, if the technology works, you should now hear me clearly. And I'm going to stand out the front so you can see me more clearly as well. Uh, my role in this is to, for a wide range of people's backgrounds here, is to take you through not what used to be called the public understanding of science, but actually the public engagement with science. We're not quite so arrogant as in an hour we can actually explain to you so you go away and be able to tell your friends about the Higgs boson, but hopefully you will engage with that concept here. And I should say that uh, Peter needs no introduction, but Victoria was some, uh, except that Peter was on my interview panel at Edinburgh and actually appointed me, so. If I get it wrong, blame him. <laughs> Victoria was a student that both Peter and I taught, um, and Victoria now is in charge of our, or partly in charge of our Atlas team, and Francesca is a first year student, second year, second year now, <laughs> student who has actually been involved in Higgs searches. And so this story, which starts in the 60s, ends up in the present day, and Edinburgh is still involved, and I think that's really quite a magic thing to do. Um, just before we move on to that, I just want to say that I came in here and I saw the portrait of Hamilton, and we were sharing the fact that Hamilton, who's uh, introduced quaternions, passed them on to Peter Guthrie Tate, and both Peter and I were former members of what became the Tate Institute of Mathematical Physics in Edinburgh. Tate got a chair over James Clark Maxwell, who we turned down, much to our shame, I guess. But uh, Tate corresponded with Hamilton and persuaded, strangely enough, Maxwell to write his equations in quaternionic. So there is a, a, a somewhat connection there anyway, and uh, the great people of the past have contributed to this. And of course, Maxwell plays a very strong part in this story. So with more ado, what I'm going to happen is I'm going to introduce the idea behind the standard model as we know it now. Peter's going to go through some recollections of his role in bringing that forward, and then we'll hand over to the people who've been really doing magnificent work on behalf of the LHC and ATLAS and the experimenters there who we have to pay tremendous tribute to. So they will tell us 
what it's like and what they have to do in order to find a thing which Peter <coughs> uh, was, if you like, led to the genesis of and who has been heard to remark, sorry I put you to all that trouble. <laughs> so if you look very, there's a subtitle here from the ancient Greeks to the Athens of the north. Well, for those of you who know Edinburgh, it's got this national folly that looks like the Parthenon, so it gets the name Athens of the north. So that's the connection. So it's from the ancient Greeks, and where do we start there? Well, we start with Democritus, who said, if you take a grain of sand, I didn't bring any with me. I thought it might look strange on the plane carrying a bottle full of portobello sand from Edinburgh. But anyway, imagine you have grains of sand and you keep on dividing it up. Can you keep, will it still be sand? Will you keep on dividing up? Will that go on forever? And the Democritus and others decided there would be a limit, which was called the atoms. Well, we are going to be investigating what are those fundamental building blocks of matter, and we'll actually discover that the chemists call them atoms much too early in the 19th century. So, let's have a look at... <coughs> We shouldn't actually dismiss that. I mean, atoms, um, the elements that were actually seen and arranged in a periodic table by Mendeleev and others, was actually a, a great categorization of what the building blocks of most substances that we knew, hydrogen, helium, sodium, calcium, etc. And there was a pattern to that, and this table was arranged in terms of physical and chemical properties, and eventually got explained in terms of the quantum mechanics. But that had to wait till a little bit later, what we do know is the atom is about 10 to the minus 10 meters across, or in lay terms, one ten thousand millionth of a meter across, and therefore it's pretty small. So you have a lot of atoms inside of you. However, Rutherford discovered that, in fact, in the center of the atom, the electron, of course, was discovered by J.J. Um, Thompson, who writes on the Cavendish Laboratory wall, God bless the electron, maybe it of some use. Well, I think if you use the word electronic, you realize that it was pretty soon of immediate use. And until recently, till LCD flat panels, TVs arrived, most of us were using essentially a cathode ray tube in order to do the stuff that we did. Rutherford discovers a very hard center. He said it was firing alpha particles a gold foil. It was as though you'd fired a cannonball at a tissue paper and it would come straight back at you. So this very hard center is 100,000 times smaller. So you see that this diagram here is not to scale. And since it's 100,000 times smaller, it's a thousand million millionth of a meter across, you actually realize that if we suspend our idea of quantum mechanics for a moment, that you're actually made of mostly empty space. You may have known that already. And in fact, most of the mass of this is concentrated in the inside. Now, experiments of scattering electrons done at Stanford Linear Accelerator Laboratory and so on, explored deeper and deeper inside this, Essentially, you can't look at these things under a microscope. You have to use what we is a probe. You have to get things to go at very high speed and smash into stuff to see what's inside. Or if you want quantum mechanics, the de Broglie wavelengths of the, of, the, of the incident particle is sufficiently short that you can probe distances down to the million, millionth, millionth of a meter that we need to do to actually see these things. So what we find, uh, to cut a short thought, is that inside the nucleus, there are neutrons and protons, which we've known for a long time. And in fact, in 1960, we didn't know about these things inside or beginning to know about what was inside. And now we know that the neutron is made of two down quarks and an up quark, and two up quarks and a down quark make a proton. So the fundamental building blocks, to cut a short story short, are the electrons that make up the atom, the protons inside, which balance out the charge, because the charge on the proton is equal 
an opposite and cancels to a very high order of magnet uh, of uh, <coughs> very high order the charge out and the neutron is actually neutral now that's what we know but let's go back to the story of Hamilton writing his equations but not in this form in quaternionic form it was Heaviside who actually wrote down these equations this is based on the vector calculus by Gibbs so these are what most standard textbooks describe as Maxwell's equations they were completed by Maxwell inspired by Faraday in order to put the electric and magnetic forces together and in fact there is a solution of these equations which show if you like uh, electromagnetic waves that are propagating along and I want to show you that if you like the red field which is pointing let's say vertical and the blue field which is horizontally the red field perhaps represents the electric field in the electromagnetic wave and the blue field uh, the magnetic field and you'll notice neither of these are pointing in the direction of propagation so the solution is of a transverse wave with electric field this way a magnetic field this way and it's propagating in this direction at right angles to those now of course I could swap the blue for the red and actually then I would have the electric field where the magnetic field was in other words what I would get would be I could have the electric field going in the vertical direction or the electric field going in the horizontal direction and so we have this picture of an electromagnetic wave traveling along and Maxwell discovered that from the constants in Coulomb's law and Ampere's law and so on that you could actually construct the velocity of this and it turned out to be equal to that of light ergo light is an electromagnetic wave and so on if we actually um, think of this some more I've got here hopefully somewhere two sheets of Polaroid in film you, you know about Polaroid glasses the light from the Sun is unpolarized but when it reflects from water it gets partially polarized so you wear Polaroid Sun spectacles and you actually have the axis that allows light through that's vibrating in one direction to cut out the glare so you can see the fish if you're a fisherman or you don't see that so light um, is polarized and so this long axis you could imagine that the electric wave will go through if it's that way but if I actually put it that way the electric wave won't go through okay so if I take the two of them then the electric wave goes through and I put them together and you don't see anything it's probably better if I go over here and do this the colors to do with the projector don't worry about it see what I mean the light from that projector is polarized and the different colors are polarized differently however what I want to show you is that we get the same and if we put them over it's slightly tinted but it's just the same but if we do that then no light goes through so in other words what we have is light can actually be polarized in that direction or that direction if we actually put this up the light that's coming out of it is polarized in that vertical direction and if I put that over it lets it through and I put it that way which only lets light going through in the horizontal direction no light gets through so what's the point of that well the point of that is that light has two degrees of freedom light can propagate along with the electric field in the vertical direction or the horizontal direction well it can actually be any angle in between but it's a linear combination of those so there are only two independent modes of oscillation and that's important two independent ways in the electric field can oscillate in other words there are two degrees of freedom in this electric classical electrical wave 
Well, if we actually ratchet forward to the ideas, Einstein gets the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect, which said that light comes in lumps, it comes in quanta, it comes in bits called photons, and essentially the mapping for the electric field being having two polarization directions goes to allowing this photon to have some sort of spin, quantum mechanical spin, which can only be either vertical or horizontal, but can't be in the direction of motion. Now, there's another way of looking at this. Einstein's, for which he doesn't get the Nobel Prize, special theory of relativity says anything that's in the direction of motion is shortened if it can move close to the speed of light. So if it's moving at the speed of light, it gets totally shortened. So there can be no polarization, no, if you like, oscillations, no spin in the direction of motion. So that means in relativity that the particle that's actually propagating along, the photon, has to be completely massless. You can't have a massive particle moving the speed of light. It can get pretty close, and we do that in the Large Hadron Collider, but it can't be exactly the speed of light. So the speed of light in a vacuum means that the particle, the photon, has to be massless. And that's a very important thing. Now, if we go forward a little bit, what we've got here is electrons scattering from antiparticles, the positrons. Now, it turns out that Peter went to the same school as Dirac, and Dirac put relativity and quantum mechanics together and described the electron, and the solution of that equation said for every electron there is an anti-electron, an antiparticle, which is called a positron. And it has the same mass, but opposite charge. So what I've got here is a diagram of a positron and electron scattering. And the description of this works if we actually regard the force between them to be mediated by the exchange of a photon. So we now go from photon being a quantum of light to being a photon is actually a carrier of the electromagnetic force. So the force between these is actually carried by the photon. Now, that works, and we can actually do a quantum field theory which we call quantum electrodynamics, which works very well. And there's an underlying symmetry in this, so-called gauge symmetry, and the fact that the photon is massless means that we can calculate in this theory, and you can calculate subtle effects in the spectrum of hydrogen to one part in a trillion in terms of the amplitude. And that one part in a trillion theoretical prediction is, so, is held up by experimental observation which can be done to the same accuracy. And if you don't realize that that's a fantastic achievement for, if you like, scientific theory and experiment jointly together, then I think you really have to take that on board. So this theory, quantum electrodynamics, works very well, and it works very well, I'm trying not to blind my two colleagues, <laughs> due to the underlying symmetry and the massless nature of the photon. So the theory of electromagnetic forces works very well from a combination of the underlying symmetry and the massless nature of the force carrier. And this is a quote from Feynman. It's as though you measure the distance between New York and Los Angeles to within the width of a human hair. Okay. So back to this. So we can actually understand the structure of the atom in terms of our quantum mechanics. We can explain the periodic table. So chemistry has just been dismissed in one sentence. Um, but we also know that we can slide stuff together and we can make fleetingly heavier particles, but we can also make all sorts of particles. We've already seen the proton is made of two up quarks and a down quark. We can make an antiproton. 
we can make a neutron, we can make lambda, and so on. And what we find is that the particles that we observe, which we call baryons or antibaryons, are made either of three quarks or three antiquarks. We can also make particles called mesons. For example, a pion is made of a, an up quark and an anti-down quark, and so on. And so you see the pattern here is that mesons are made of a quark and an antiquark. So everything that are composite particles, baryons or mesons, are made either of three quarks or a quark and an antiquark. And there's a reason that we now understand that, and we'll come back to that. But we find heavier quarks than up and down quarks. Fleetingly, we can make things which contain much heavier quarks, charm, strange, top and bottom. And essentially then over here, the particles that we see are these quarks over here. We know about electron. We've already associated with electron. There is a neutrino, which we don't have time to discuss in full detail tonight. And there's a heavier version of the, particle, uh, of the electrical muon. This is a very strong component of Earth's surface cosmic rays. If I hold out my hand, about six muons per second are passing through it, which have been created at the top of the atmosphere. And we can, in our particle accelerator, we can create tau, uh, a much heavier lepton. And you'll notice that generally the mass gets heavier as we go down, so these get heavier as we go down. And the present universe, apart from things which are made fleetingly, is made out of this shaded area, which we call ordinary matter. So you're made of ordinary matter. There's nothing extraordinary about you. This is ordinary matter. But we have three generations, and we have these quarks. Now, I should say that you'll notice that the electric charge of the up quark is two-thirds. So if you add two ups and a down, we get two-thirds plus two-thirds minus a third, which is a charge plus one, which is the charge of the electron. If we take two downs and an up, then we get zero, which is the neutron. But these are sort of odd charges, but I should point out that we now know that these quarks also not only come in what we call flavors, up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom, but they also come in colors. Okay, they're not really colored. We can't see them. They never can see these three quarks, but we call them red, green, and blue. And if you remember, I said three quarks. So we take a red one, a green one, and a blue one, we get a colorless quark. That actually works. The theory that we use called quantum chromodynamics works if the states that we make are colorless, and that takes three quarks to make zero color. And if we take a quark, which is red, and an antiquark, which is anti-red, then that's colorless. So the mesons and baryons have an explanation for the observed states by this color. Now, that actually is a flippant way of actually saying that there's an underlying symmetry group, which is exact, which only allows these colorless states of three quarks or quark-antiquark. There may be some exotic states, but the evidence isn't that strong. Okay, but if we then go forward, if we actually think about the strong interaction now, that's the bit that holds the quarks together inside the nucleons, and the residual strong force keeps the nucleus together, then the strong force, we discover, is mediated by, again, a bit of whimsy from us particle physicists, is the bits that make the quarks stick together are called gluons. What else are you going to call them? And these come in eight varieties. So we have eight gluons, which say a quark and an antiquark annihilate and make it, say, a top quark and an anti-top quark. Then the gluon that's exchanged turns out to be, although we can never see these things freely, theoretically they have zero mass. And there's an underlying symmetry which is more complicated than in quantum electrodynamics 
because the gluons can actually interact with each other as well. So it's more complicated and it's called quantum chromodynamics. And it works because the underlying symmetry, a gauge symmetry or Yang-Mills symmetry, whichever you want to call it, actually works very well. And because the force carriers are massless, then this is what we call a renormalizable theory. You can do fantastic calculations with it. The calculations, of course, whole industry of people work on supercomputers doing lattice gauge calculations because it's much harder to calculate quantum chromodynamics in, uh, as compared to what was pretty tough anyway in terms of quantum electrodynamics. So it's more complicated, but that ain't the end of the story because along comes the weak interaction Neutrons will decay. If you get a free neutron, it decays in about 14 minutes, and it decays, as we can see over here, into a proton, electron, and an antineutrino. Uh, we can actually also have similar e, e plus e minus. We can take a B meson and a B uh, antimeson, and we exchange particles here. If this is going to look like those other interactions, this weak interaction, nuclear forces nuclear beta decay, actually have to be Einstein's particles. And it turns out that in order for that to work, then these particles have to have the mass about 90 times that of the uh, proton. So these force carriers here are very heavy, apart from the photon, which is massless. These are very heavy. And that's a real problem, because the theory will not work if we put the masses in by hand. If, it, if these particles were massless, then it would work. But they ain't. Nature isn't like that. And the weak interaction hasn't been ordered out of fun because we're here today because of the weak interaction, because the burning process in the sun that provide the energy by which we all survive involve the weak interaction very strongly. So all of these things are absolutely essential for us, and we need to understand them. The thing we don't understand is if we look here, the down quark comes along and changes into an up quark, if you remember the arithmetic for the charges, you'll realize this is negatively charged, this W going across here, and that decays into an electron and a neutrino. So these three force carriers here, which carry the weak force, have to be heavy, and that's a real problem. So they're 90 times more massive, and it doesn't work if they're hand. So the question is, can we start off with these things being massless? Okay, and they ain't. These are the measured masses. They ain't. Can we make them massive, and in what way can we get the theory to work without spoiling the underlying symmetry and, and still giving them mass? Can we give them mass in a different way? And this is where Peter comes in in 1964. We are not going to go through these equations, but uh, there we are. Essentially, hidden in here is Peter's model in his paper of 1964, which hidden in here, there is a, a mu that describes the electromagnetic field of the photon and so on, or a putative photon. This phi is what is known as a Higgs field. Now, for you, those of you who see it, it's a complex number, so it's got two components. So let's see if I can explain to you spontaneous symmetry breaking. Here's a Mexican hat, or for those who prefer it, the bottom of a wine bottle. You'll notice it's got pushed up there in the middle. Now, imagine, for example, we have a bowl that's shaped like that with no pushed up part in the middle. So we have a bowl, a nice shape, coming down to a minimum at the bottom. And imagine that it's actually rotated around. So we have this nice mixing bowl. It won't sit nicely on your 
worktop because it doesn't have a flat bottom. It comes to a minimum. You put a ball bearing in it, and the ball bearing sits in the middle. Now you look down and you turn it around. The ball bearing stays in the middle, and no matter how you turn it around, it always looks the same. So there is no change of symmetry, so the minimum of the energy that the particle has is sitting at the bottom of this ball. Now imagine we take the same ball, but we deform it by pushing up the middle, as we would in a wine bottle or in a Mexican sombrero. The particle will no longer sit here because the lowest state of energy that it want to be would be here. So now it sits over the side. So now imagine I have this bowl. It looks all the same around so I can rotate it. And the ball bearing that we put in is sitting in the trough. If I now turn this, it doesn't look the same. Because as I turn it, the ball bearing moves around. So it's a 45, 90 degrees, etc. So as we move it around, the symmetry is no longer there. So the symmetry is gone by the fact that we've pushed this up. And so now we're down here. Now, you realize that the bowl I have isn't a one-dimensional one, it's a two-dimensional one. So there's an x and a y direction. So essentially, there is two motions. The ball bearing can go x or y. In the original ball, which didn't have the indent, it, you need effort to push it up the sides. And therefore, you're going to have to put a force on it, and therefore, it's as though these things have mass. So if you have, and you push away from the minimum, then they have mass. But in this case, this ball bearing has two now degrees of motion. It can go up and down the trough, which means we have to push hard on it. So that's equivalent to gaining mass. But the one that runs around the trough, I give it a push, and it'll keep on going. In other words, it will run as though there's no force, and therefore it's as though it actually has got mass. So what we see here is that once we break the symmetry spontaneously by altering the shape here, then this thing here can go around, and it's massless, and this one here, sorry, and, and this mode here corresponds to a massive particle. Keep that in mind. Okay. So what happens in Peter's equations is that the mode that goes around the bottle, which was a problem because it corresponds to massless particles we don't see, gets swallowed up by the photon field. And now it's got three components, horizontal, vertical, and in the direction of motion. So the massless part of that has been swallowed up when you rejig the equations. And what's left over is a massive one. So in Peter's model, our inverted commas photon becomes massive and has three degrees of freedom. And we have left over a particle which is massive that goes up and down, which is the putative Higgs boson. Now, of course, that's a toy model because it doesn't include the Ws and Zs and so on. So we need a little bit more. So I'm going to quickly go on and say, if we start with four massless weak gauge bosons, so these have two, 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 and two, so they have eight spin components. And we start off with four massless, what we could call Higgs fields. The total components are 12. What we do is a similar trick with our Mexican hat potential. And we make three of them heavy. So three of them become heavy and therefore have three components. The photon remains massless. There's one left over, and we still got 12 things that we started with. But now they've been rejigged, and so our 
Force carriers, the W+, W-, and Z, have become heavy. The photon remains massless. And the leftover one, the thing in the trough that's going side to side, is the Higgs boson. Well, um, later on we can talk about the Higgs mechanism, but there was a competition by William Waldegray who said, on a side of A4, explain to me the Higgs mechanism. And here we have what in the region one is a room full of Tory faithful. Now it's, of course, a conference, and in comes Einstein, not Margaret Thatcher. This was sanitized by Chris Llewellyn Smith. And suddenly everybody pays attention, and then suddenly there's a lot of interactions between the environment, namely the group of physicists at the conference, and then Einstein has difficulty progressing through the room. It's as though he's actually gained mass. So that's an analogy. And later on, if someone asks me the question, we'll do the thing at the front here as a part of audience <laughs> participation. Of course, in July the 4th, as we've heard, we actually heard that a Higgs-like particle had been found. There's Peter. Actually, I happened to get a free ticket with Peter. And Peter being congratulated by Fabiola. And just look at this. And there was a, a Peter will recount what it feels like there. This is the signal that we now know. And the standard model now, with the completion of the Higgs, does look like a piece of well-designed Swiss machinery that works beautifully. There are still things to iron out, but it seems to work very well. I'm not the experimentalist. I hope you've got at least an understanding, or at least a glimmer of an understanding, of what's going on here. It is important because in the standard model, it's the Higgs boson was the last, it's the piece of the jigsaw that we needed. And um, what we didn't want to do is to hammer the piece of jigsaw in, even if it didn't fit properly. And it seems to, at the moment, it seems to fit perfectly in the standard model. But those are ideas that I've explained. And I'm now going to ask Peter to give a talk of his account of how he came up with ideas and what his inspiration was. Peter. I'll uh, introduce you to the standard, what's called the standard model of particle physics. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to elaborate on, on that. I'm going to tell you something about the time when there was no standard model, uh, because the uh, story of this theoretical development starts about 1960. It happened to coincide in terms of the year with the, the time that I was appointed a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, but the um, theoretical work at the, that was going on at the time in particle physics uh, was very, very different from uh, the kind of things which Alan's described. Um, ten year, about 10 years earlier, around 1950, uh, it had been shown that quantum electrodynamics, the theory of the interaction between things like electrons and uh, light or photons, electromagnetism, uh, was a, a, an extremely uh, good theory, as Alan said, with predictions which were capable of extremely high accuracy. Uh, but w when it came to 
treating the problems in particle physics, which particle physicists thought were really important, uh, like the, the strong interactions which hold the nuclear particles together, uh, and <clears throat> the weak interactions which are responsible for things like radioactive beta decay, uh, it's simply, uh, that sort of theory simply didn't seem to work. Uh, the theory, as Alan has, has said, <coughs> which was, had been successful, was a, a, the, the application of quantum mechanics to a theory of fields, fields like Maxwell electromagnetic fields and so on. And uh, <coughs> basically, what had been learnt from that kind of theory was that in uh, quantum field theory, uh, the energy and other properties of the fields comes in lumps. The lumps are what we count as particles, things like photons, which were first uh, introduced uh, in the work of Einstein in, in 1905. Uh, and also, uh, there are kind, rather strange kinds of, of fields which we used uh, to describe the particles which make up matter. There are basically two uh, main, two categories of particle. The, the particles which make up matter are unsociable particles called fermions, uh, after Enrico Fermi. Uh, their char characteristic is that only one, one particle at a time can occupy a single quantum state, and that results in the Pauli exclusion principle, which makes it possible to build matter out of them, so that those are particles which have uh, a half-odd integer multiple of Planck's constant by 2 pi for their spin, and then the other category are called bosons after the Indian, uh, well, Bengali physicist Bose, and these are sociable particles. Uh, you can't build matter out of them. They like to get together, and they, they can get together in any number you please, and you can, you can build forces and radiation out of them, uh, and you can make them behave in a classical field theory way, which uh, fermion fields never would. So there were these two categories of of, of field and corresponding categories of particles, that the matter particles and the quanta of the fields, of the, of the forces, force fields. Now, the, the uh, people in, in the 50s were mainly interested in explaining the uh, properties of the strong nuclear force that, uh, and, and the theory just didn't work quantitatively there, and it was only later when it turned out for experimental reasons, which Alan's described, that, it, that, that neutrons and protons were merely, really made out of something more elementary called quarks. It was only then that, that it, it was realized that we, people had, had tried to use a, a quantum field theory based on the wrong sort of basic fields because the 
neutrons and protons weren't the elementary particles that people thought they were. The other failure of quantum field theory was in the weak interactions, uh, which are the, the beta decay type radioactivity interactions. And the problem there was that any uh, theory which would account for the properties of the weak interactions had to involve, as Alan said, uh, massive carriers of the, for of the force, massive bosons, integer spin particles, and in fact, particles of spin one unit. Uh, and uh, all the theories which people tried, which involved massive spin one particles, uh, were, were simply uh, nonsense in the sense that although you could calculate to the uh, at the very lowest order approximation and make sense of them, they gave nonsense, mathematical nonsense infinities when you went further. So there was a real uh, dilemma there about contradiction between the the experimental evidence and the available theories. Uh, the, 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 the problem there clearly was with having massive particles, which you needed to make of short range force uh, in, in this quantum field theory. Now, the uh, the thing which happened in 1960, by which time most particle physicists had abandoned quantum field theory as, as being useless in, uh, in, in this kind of theoretical context, was that um, a Japanese-born American theorist, uh, Yoichiro Nambu at the University of Chicago, uh, had the bright idea of learning from the successful theory of superconductors. Now, superconductivity sounds like an entirely different kind of physics, and of course it is. It's condensed matter physics. It's about the vanishing <coughs> at extremely low temperatures of electrical resistance in uh, metals and alloys. But the theory which had been formulated a few years earlier in, the, in, the, in 1957 by Bardeen, Cooper and Schrieffer, um, it struck Nambu as something from which particle theorists could learn. And the first thing that he did was to <coughs> set up a quantum field theory of, of fully relativistic for particle physics of the strong interactions, which mimicked the successful theory of superconductivity. Uh, and what he was able to do was to uh, take what looked like a, a theoretical uh, field, field theory model in which you had apparently no mass for your matter particles, your fermions, which he thought were the elementary fermions were uh, neutrons and bosons, neutrons and, and uh, protons, 
because we, at that stage quarks weren't, weren't invented. Um, you could start from a theory in which they, they appear to, to, to be massless objects, but the interactions uh, uh, generated uh, um, the mass by a process which is known as spontaneous symmetry breaking. It's, it's a, a, a process whereby a, a, a symmetry, which is an underlying symmetry in the field theory, uh, as it were, doesn't, doesn't come through to the phenomena uh, and appears broken uh, as a result of the lowest state quantum state of the energy quantum state of the theory, what we call the vacuum, being asymmetric. That was the context in which Alan showed this uh, model with a, with a, a bowl uh, to illustrate spontaneous symmetry breaking. Um, this, this enabled Nambu to produce theories in which the matter particles, fermions, got their mass uh, w without having it, been, it having been put in by, by hand. But that didn't impress most people because there wasn't any big problem theoretically with fermion masses. This is particles of spin one half unit. Uh, the, the existing theories uh, could, could handle uh, masses put in by hand without uh, wrecking the, the, the mathematical consistency. So this didn't attract much notice. Uh, what was worse, Nambu's models uh, predicted the existence of particles without any spin as bound states of the basic uh, spin half particles, but, but spin zero particles which didn't have any mass. Uh, and th these were uh, things which uh, really implied that the theory couldn't be realistic because uh, such particles, if they existed in, in the real world, would be responsible for a great deal of the radi radiation from, of energy from stars, which we know is mainly electromagnetic. So that theory was, uh, uh, at that stage, not successful. Uh, what happened after discussion in the theoretical physics literature over a period of three or four years was that a number of people came to realize that what Nambu and also the, the English theorist uh, Jeffrey Goldstone had um, uh, uh, um, omitted from their theorizing was fields of the Maxwell type, things like the electromagnetic field, which have rather special special properties called uh, a gauge symmetry. And um, in fact, in, in, in 1964, uh, although I, I, I get most of the publicity about this work, there were altogether six people who wrote papers on this subject. Uh, the first two people to publish were Robert Brout and Francois Anglaire at the University of Brussels. 
uh, I was the second from Edinburgh, and the third was a group of three people, uh, Jerry Guralnik, Carl Hagen, and Tom Kibble from Imperial College London. Uh, what we had all come to realize was that a theorem which had been proved in the previous few years, which became known as the Goldstone theorem, which insisted that if you combined this idea of spontaneous symmetry breaking with the, uh, the symmetry which is needed for relativity theory called Lorentz invariance, that you must have such spin, spinless, massless particles in the theory, that this theorem had built into it axioms which were not always satisfied by uh, viable theories, and in particular, uh, Maxwell's electrodynamics uh, would not uh, satisfy uh, these axioms uh, uh, and would render the proof of the theorem invalid. Uh, for my part, I, I, I came to this realization over a, a period of a weekend in July as a, when I was reacting to a, a previous paper which seemed to uh, completely shut the door on Nambu's kind of theories. And um, I, I, over the period of, of a couple of weeks, I wrote two very short papers, one of which said the, the, the clue to uh, getting, getting around this theorem of Goldstone's is to introduce a gauge field interaction like Maxwell electrodynamics. And then the second paper was a follow-up to see what actually happened if you introduced uh, an interaction of a NAMBU-type model with uh, a Maxwell type of field. The second paper, which is the one which uh, contained the equations which Alan showed on the board, uh, was actually rejected by the, the referee, or whoever he was, and the editor of physics letters working at CERN. Um, and and uh, that resulted in my being somewhat uh, indignant, as, as you can imagine, because I thought I'd ma made an important observation. And it was as a result of, of rewriting the paper which, with a little additional material that I came to draw attention to the existence in theories of the type which I, I'd, I and the others had, had written down uh, involving a Maxwell type field as well as uh, the Nambu Goldstone type of, of field theory, um, that th these would always have uh, sort of left, leftover particles of spin zero which are massive, the things which, which, which uh, are not uh, made to form part of the uh, extra polarization of the massive counterpart of the photon when you, when you introduce this mechanism which uh, results in a mass for things like the photon. Uh, so the name Higgs boson is, is, is largely an, an accident as, as a, which follows from the fact that I had to rewrite my second paper. Uh, but it also uh, 
is a result of of the uh, uh, talk which was given some years later by uh, the rapporteur at a conference at Fermilab, who who had heard about the theory from me at the reception after a conference in 1967, and um, attached my name to everything concerned with this type of, of theory, uh, Higgs field, Higgs mechanism, Higgs everything, and failed to mention all the other five people who'd been involved. The other five people, as you could imagine, were not pleased. Uh, what we did in 1964 was still not realistic as physics. It was, a, it was a, as it were, a, a theorist toy. And the realistic application came only in the work of uh, Steven Weinberg and Abdus Salam three years later in 1967, who uh, applied the ideas formulated in 1964 uh, to uh, an electroweak theory by uh, Shelley Glashow of, uh, from 1960, uh, which had been uh, spoiled in terms of its viability by having to put in masses of spin one particles by hand, which meant it, it, it wasn't a mathematically sensible theory. So I think that that's perhaps the, the point at which I should stop reminiscing about the theory and invite Victoria to tell you something about the search for this particle which has been named after me, but which probably ought to be named after several other people as well. <laughs> well, it's, uh, my microphone's on. It, it's my pleasure to follow these two um, great gentlemen and tell you how 50 years later, we got to this stage last year. So this is the 4th of July, 2012 at CERN, like Alan already said. And um, this is not exactly what we saw on the 4th of July, but we, no, actually this is, sorry, this is the plot from the 4th of July. And, and the exciting part here is the fact that this curve now dips down at exactly a mass of 126, I think. Um, like I said, what we want to do now, I want, what I want to do now is explain why, ooh, why keep this keep going. here was all exciting. So I'm calling it finding that boson. And, and you may insert whatever word you want in here. Um, so what would you do if you want to make some Higgs bosons? So I've got a little recipe for us here. So first, it's quite simple. Um, firstly, you take two very high energy protons and I personally get mine from CERN, but um, uh, you, you can find another supply if you're lucky. And you smash them together. And one in a hundred billion of these collisions will form a Higgs boson. So it's, it's quite simple. One issue, though, once you've made your Higgs boson, it will decay, evaporate into something else, after 10 to the minus 22 seconds. Um, that's very, very quick. So 
If you want to then detect the fact that you had a Higgs boson, all you need to do is assemble a highly sophisticated state-of-the-art detector around the collision point, and then observe what the Higgs boson has decayed into. And then just to be sure you really had a Higgs boson, you want to repeat this 25 million times a second for about one and a half years. So you can try this tonight at home. Um, so obviously, it's more complicated than, than I've made it sound. And this is only possible because we have CERN. So I'm sure most of you have heard of CERN. CERN is the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Um, the acronym comes from the French, as you can see, O-E-R-N. Um, the, the C actually stands for center in this. It's located near the Franco-Swiss border um, in near Geneva, Switzerland. And it's a, a collaboration of 20 European countries, including the UK, but unfortunately, at the moment, not Ireland, though we do have Irish physicists working there. So there's about 4,000 employees at CERN, but I'm actually one of the 10,000 visiting scientists. And the 10,000 visiting scientists come from 608 universities and research facilities all over the world. And what does CERN do? Well, CERN provides us with particle accelerators. And uh, the particle accelerators are used by, I, I tried to count them up, so this is just a guess, but about 17 different experiments. And I and Francisca are a member of one of the experiments, one of the experiments, ATLAS, that was looking for the Higgs boson. So we do that by using the main um, accelerator at CERN, the Large Hadron Collider. So the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, is CERN's um, main activity. And there's six different experiments use um, the LHC. Now, the LHC is not, doesn't just rely on one accelerator, but a whole chain of accelerators that um, I've illustrated here. So what happens is the protons um, come in here, and they go around this little ring here, whose name I forget. I think it's called the booster. The booster. And then they go into this second one um, called the proton synchrotron. They come out and go here in this loop, which is the super proton synchrotron. And when I was doing my PhD um, at CERN, back also at the University of Edinburgh, the experiment I worked on, and I also worked with Alan, he was one of my PhD supervisors, was at this ring here. But now we use this, the Large Hadron Collider. And actually CERN's been very clever in being able to reuse all these old facilities um, to make the Large Hadron Collider. And you need all these steps, because you start with very low energy protons, and they get more and more and more energetic as they go through all the stages of the chain. So how do you get protons? Protons are quite easily available. Um, here is the source of the protons for the LHC. This is a bottle of um, uh, hydrogen, um, and you can buy it at any supply store, any, any scientific supply store. And I think this thing would cost about 200 euros. Um, you have to give them the bottle back at the end, but the hydrogen costs about um, 200 euros. Um, they have to keep replacing the bottle of this. I can't quite remember, maybe every year. And it's not because they use up all of the protons inside the hydrogen. It's because the hydrogen starts to escape from the bottle more quickly than we can actually pull it out 
and accelerated around the LHC. So a couple of facts and figures about the LHC. So here is an aerial photograph of the Franco-Swiss border, and here is the line where the Large Hadron Collider goes. It's underground, so that's why we can't see it in that picture. So it's 27 kilometers in circumference. It's between 50 and 175 meters underground, because just because the ground slopes over that distance. To keep the beam in or or orbit around the, the LHC, we use these. We use around 10,000 magnets, and the beam basically goes um, through these. 1,200 of them are these dipole magnets. So these dipole magnets, this is one of them being lowered down one of the shafts to build the LHC. Each of them are 40, sorry, 14.3 meters long. They run at 1.9 Kelvin, so 1.9 degrees above absolute zero. That's colder than the average dist than the average temperature between here and the sun. So it, this is one of the coldest places in the solar system. And they each provide a very big magnetic field, um, 8.3 Tesla. So if anyone knows about magnetic fields, they'll realize that's a very strong magnetic field. And they cost about half a million Swiss francs each. Moreover, inside each of these is a very ultra-high vacuum. So actually, inside each of the magnets, it looks like this. So you see there's two holes in them. And one of them is for protons going one way, and one of them is for protons going the other way. This other picture, which I didn't talk to, is a picture back from the 1980s when they were digging the tunnel through the LHC. The tunnel was actually dug for a previous experiment called the large, uh, not the large, it was called the um, LEP. Large Electron Positron. See, it was called large, I can't remember. Large Electron Positron Collider. This is why I have my generations with me um, <laughs> to remind me. Um, so the tunnel was already built. And then we, we filled it up with this recently. So the LHC is the ultimate atom smasher. So um, it smashes 10 billion protons. We don't just get one proton out of that bottle of hydrogen in one bottle and smash them together. We get 10 billion at a time and 10 billion at a time and smash them together. And we do that 25 million times a second at four different points around the ring. So actually, there's the points where we do the collision, I'll probably get this wrong, are here, here, here. I can't see one over here and here. Anyway, there's four points along the room where they make the, the protons collide together along the ring. So how do we find the Higgs? I mean, I already said that only one in 10 billion of these collisions at the LHC will form a Higgs boson. Um, and this, this is the most um, scientific graph I have um, to show you. So up at the top here, so this is the energy of the Large Hadron Collider, and this is a measure of how often we make something. So up here at the top um, is... Oh, I'm pressing the wrong button. Is that something happens. So we smash the two protons together, and something happens. And down here at the bottom, so this is a logarithmic scale. Um, this is when a Higgs boson happens. So it's only one in 10 to the 8 collisions, so one in 100 billion collisions 
that will make us a Higgs boson. And that, like I said, after we make the Higgs boson, it decays very quickly. So what does it decay into? That's really key if you want to look for a Higgs boson. Well, it decays into a pair of particles, generally a matter and an antimatter pair of particles. And we know, um, because of Peter's theory, um, which kinds of pairs it's going to decay into. So that's generally, that's generally what we go off and look for. But there's a huge challenge to find a pair of particles from a Higgs boson in amongst all the collisions that are going on at the same time. And that's the big challenge of finding the Higgs boson. So to do that, you need this. So this is the Atlas experiment. It's um, arranged around one of the collision points. And you can, you can see the scale here from one of the constructors. Um, that picture there is when it was being built. And these arms here are from one magnet that um, we put in to help us identify what happens in the middle. It, the, this is an artist drawing of it where it's all filled. So you can see the magnets that I pointed out before. But now you can see it's all filled with highly sophisticated detecting equipment. And um, you can see here, when they're putting it together, at this point, what they were trying to do is they put all of the pieces together and they tried to close it up. Now, one interesting thing about Atlas is this thing is um, 40 meters long, 25 meters high. It would not fit into this room. But it all had to come down a shaft that was no bigger than um, 14 meters. So it all came down piece by piece by piece and was assembled 100 meters underground. Um, so how does Atlas work? Well, a very simple way of describing it is it's essentially the largest and most sophisticated digital camera that we've ever built. Um, so like I said, it's 45 meters long, 25 meters diameter. It's 7,000 tons. And the idea is that it absorbs all the long-lived particles that the Higgs boson might decay into. So the Higgs boson decays, and whatever particles come out, Sometimes them themselves decay, but eventually we get ones that live long enough to travel from the collision point five centimeters to hit the atlas detector. And then as they travel through the atlas detector, we can work out what kind of particles they were, how fast they were going, how energetic they are. And then we piece that back together to work out if we saw a Higgs boson or not. So here's an illustration. So here are protons going through the booster we started with, and then the proton synchrotron. And you see each time they're getting more and more energetic. So here they are going into the super proton synchrotron. And finally, you'll see they go into the Large Hadron Collider. So I work on the Atlas experiment. So let's follow a proton here. Um, some graffiti on the wall there. These are the dipole magnets I was talking about before. And you see they go through the French-Swiss border. So inside the proton, we have three quarks. And here's one proton coming in. There are 10 um, billion of them. but And here's another proton coming in. And they collide right in the center of our atlas detector. Something happens. In this case, we were lucky. We made a Higgs boson, and it's decayed. It's decayed into two photons, which are particles of light. And that's what we were looking for. 
we were looking for the 1 in 10 billion chance. In fact, it's even less common than that. It's because the, the Higgs boson does decay into two photons, but not um, all the time, less than 1% of the time. So we're looking for this one in, how do I get this now, a trillion chance, 10 trillion chance, that what we do is make a Higgs boson and decays into two photons. But we can do it. And here's a picture that we've taken with the Atlas experiment with our digital camera, where we've seen two photons. So photons, Alan mentioned already, and Peter as well, are particles of light. And in our detector, they look um, a bit like this. So this is a kind of map of the energy, and you see two spikes. These are two energy spikes from photons. You can see them here and here. And this is just blown up a bit more detail. So that's what we look for. Um, OK, so let's, let's, let's go up a level. What Francisca works on, and she's going to explain a bit more, is, is she looks for the Higgs boson decaying not into photons, but into something called Z bosons. Now, Z bosons are the reason that we have the Higgs boson in the first place. The Z bosons, they decay. They decay even quicker than the Higgs boson. So we can't look for the Z bosons directly, but they decay into electrons and, and positrons, anti-electrons. So what we do is we go off and we look for two electrons and two positrons. And here's a picture, again, from Atlas, where we've seen um, four. You can see there's four spikes here. And these are two electrons and two positrons. So this is what we expect the Higgs boson to look like inside our detector. Now, the question is, was that really a Higgs boson? Or was that the other 99,999,999 uh, other things that can happen when you don't make a Higgs boson? And that's actually what we spend a lot of time doing, um, working out if we really did see a Higgs boson or if it was just something that looked very similar. Um, and finally, here's another picture um, where in the Z boson here is decayed into different particles. These are the muons. These are kind of like heavy electrons. And again, you can see four spikes here. So this is another picture we've taken that looks very much like um, a Higgs boson decay. So, how do you put that all together? So this is when we've gone off and we've looked for the Higgs boson decaying into two photons. What we did is we made um, this plot. So what I've, what's shown here is the mass of the two photons. So we get the two photons, we work out how energetic they were, and we work out what the mass of whatever the photons decayed into is, and we make a plot. So we got this kind of falling off distribution with a little bump. Now this little bump is just quite small, but that's it. That's the Higgs boson. Um, and I think it's a bit more convincing down here, where if we take off the kind of background shape, you can see this is not a little bump. This is quite a big bump. So there's a small excess of events with a mass of around 125. And we believe that this is due to a Higgs boson being made inside the detector um, with a mass of about 125. So just this unit we use here GeV is roughly the mass of a single proton. So this Higgs boson is about 125 times the mass of a single proton. Yet they're both, um, yet a Higgs boson is much smaller than a proton. So it's quite interesting. Um, so I'm going to leave um, Francisca. You've got this plot, Francisca? Um, I think so. Okay. So you can talk about that because that's 
what she works on. So for more details on what it's like to work on this, I'm going to hand over to Francisco. Yeah, so I'm here to tell just a story from a PhD student and how it's been for me studying here uh, at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so as you see from my accent, I am not from UK. I come from Chile, so South America, um, where we have there uh, two universities and approximately 15 scientists working for CERN, uh, specifically on Atlas. So we are very few of us there. So I came here to specialize myself and start my PhD at Edinburgh. So I travel like uh, 1,791 kilometers. So it was a really nice 15-hour flight plus, uh, uh, I don't know, stops. Uh, so it was like 24 hours or something. So I really recommend you to travel to Chile and visit. <laughs> it's really nice. Uh, and there, I found now that only one department, uh, we have uh, around 20 scientists and six nationalities working there together as a collaboration. Um, uh, I'm, and also there, I found that I have been uh, several doors open to travel uh, some other places just to study or conferences to tell about uh, the things that I'm studying or research. Um, and the, uh, the travels that I've made most are uh, to Geneva, to CERN. And then there I found around, I think I have the numbers not well <laughs> with you, but there are around 3,000 scientists working there, uh, 38 nationalities and 125 institutions working all together. Uh, and that for me was really shocking. I mean, um, so this is a picture from the uh, Building 40 at CERN. Uh, this is uh, the Atlas collaboration, so you can see that we fill all the four or five uh, uh, floors of the building. So what about our particle uh, physics experiment group at Edinburgh? Uh, so the upper picture is uh, the one from us that are based at Edinburgh, and the lower picture are the ones that are based at CERN. Uh, and what do we do for Atlas? Um, so first we do Higgs searches. So as Victoria mentioned, there is the four lepton channel uh, and also the bottom and the bottom channels. Also we do uh, Atlas simulation. So uh, this is done because we need something to compare with the, dat the data that we are taking from the detector. Uh, and finally, also, uh, we're working on the Atlas upgrade. So right now, Atlas is on a shutdown to get the detector better. So we're also uh, working on that. Uh, and so what was the big announcement on the 4th of July of la last year? Um, so as you can see, this was shown also. This was the talk uh, that day. And in these pictures, I'm showing the uh, lines that were uh, done by people the night before. So I have a friend there that was doing the queue for going in the talk, like, I don't know, from 8 p.m. the day before, and they slept all night there. And it was really exciting. And from my part, I, I was at, um, in holidays uh, visiting my family in Chile. 
but still, we got together with my ex-supervisor there and my friends from the university uh, at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> uh, but we bought some champagne, something to eat, so it was really nice to, to, to see this uh, light. So what came out of it uh, was this paper, this physics uh, on the physics letter B. And the title was Observation of a New Particle in the Search for the Standard Model Higgs Boson with the Atlas Detector at LHC. So I remarked observation of a new particle because we needed to, we knew that it was a new particle, but we needed to uh, understand its properties and to see if it was or not a, a, a standard model Higgs boson. Uh, so this was the five, uh, final, um, the, the end of the, of the talk that day. And then you can see Alan there. And, Peter here, so we can do a zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and John Ellis is also there. Uh, so what, uh, how do we interpret the results? Uh, so well, they are very difficult. <laughs> so what we usually see is this plot. So the x-axis represents the Higgs mass calculated from the data. Uh, and the y-axis is the, what we call the local p-value. But what it really is telling you is that, for example, uh, from the black solid line, we are uh, getting until 10 to the minus 9. So we have 10 to the minus 9 probability that this is not uh, a Higgs boson uh, or a new particle in this case. So the other color lines are just the uh, other the uh, individual channels for the Higgs searches, and they basically all match in this peak. And the black one is the combination of all the other all the other channels, and this is just the combination again. So I put a, a little piece from the paper that I thought it was really nice. So it says. A clear evidence for the production of a neutral boson with a measured mass of 126 plus or minus 0.4 statistics plus or minus 0.4 systematic CV is presented. This observation has a significance of 5.9 standard deviations corresponding to a background fluctuation probability of 1.7 times 10 to the minus 9 uh, is compatible with the production and decay of the standard model Higgs boson. Did you understand something? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, but the important thing here is that we are 99.99995% sure that we find something of mass 125. And now the work is that we need to figure out if it is a, a, a standard model Higgs boson or not. So I wanted to show here uh, just how we gather data over, the, over all these years, so from the 24th of April to, uh, 2011, and I think I have to press the play button, right? So again here, uh, this plot is only for the uh, ZZ to four lepton channel, so Higgs decays to ZZ, and this Z decay into four leptons that Victoria described, and we can calculate the invariant mass of the four leptons that are produced. The, the black uh, dots are the data collected. Uh, the red and uh, pink uh, curves are just background. So these ones are uh, the ones that, with, uh, that they are decaying into four leptons, but they don't really come from a Higgs boson. Uh, can you put it again, Alan, please? Yeah, sure. So 
So as you see, gathering the, uh, uh, you have to hold play again. <laughs> the data was gathered, and here, around 126, we start to see signal there from data. Uh, play again. <laughs> Sorry, it's not behaving. There. I don't know why it's pausing, but I think that's fine. But yeah, but the important thing here is that I wanted to show you how uh, you can see uh, through time uh, how the data, data is showing and you a signal. And here we have a zoom over uh, the range of 100 to 200. Um, uh, and we see the peak here from the data to, for the 126 uh, GB boson. Uh, so some some final words. Um, so when I was doing my undergraduate, um, I always heard like on my lectures about uh, that for me were really stories and very stories that were really far from, for example, Maxwell with the electromagnetic theory, uh, Madame and Pierre Curie for the radioactivity, uh, Einstein with the photoelectric effect, uh, uh, Professor Higgs uh, for the theory and Higgs mechanism, then Carlo Rubia and Vandermeer for the discovery of the Z and the W boson. And finally now, uh, we have the discovery of this new particle that is uh, almost like a Higgs boson, uh, a standard model Higgs boson. Um, and what I wanted to say that I'm really honored because now I'm part of that story and I'm, I'm, I'm having a small role uh, um, researching on it. Um, and and that, it, that is really, really nice. So thank you. <laughs>